0: Hey, welcome to night school. And a friend of mine messaged me this morning, a friend who listens to this show, uh, about her own experience with uh, hitting a low point and then experiencing some sort of transformation or liftoff after that. And, you know, obviously that's a process, it's not just a you've completed all the steps. You know, obviously it doesn't work that way. And it did get me thinking about. How what propels you to that point is often a feeling of not so much bottoming out, but coming from that low place where you couldn't feel lower. And I know for me, I was always waiting to bottom out. I was always waiting to hit the ground. You know, you feel like you're in this free fall down the abyss and you're waiting to hit the ground because there's some security to that. It's like even if things get horrible... And they're and they're horrible for the rest of my life. I just want to hit the ground. I want to bottom out. But I think the way an abyss works is you never really stop falling. You're in free fall forever, as long as you're in that abyss. And if you're in that free fall, you don't feel like you have the momentum to. I mean, to fly. I mean, who can fly? Uh, there's no airplanes down here, right? Uh, but it's this kind of this hope for the security of the cavern floor. Like, I, even if it hurts when I hit it, even if I can't move, it's like I want to hit that, that low point because at least it's something, at least it's a place to rest. Because when you're in this, you know, just free fall, you just don't feel like you can do anything. Uh, but realizing you can is important. You know, realizing that it's like you're never going to bottom out. You know, yeah, some people wake up and they find themselves in jail for the rest of their lives or they did, you know, they mangled themselves beyond repair. But even then, I don't know that people, I don't know that it's possible to ruin your life. Because that's uh, an interesting phrase that's very commonly used. Ruining your life. And people understand that. People understand what it means to ruin your life. And if you were to poll people, you'd get a lot of similar answers to what that means. Ruining your life. You're going to ruin your life. And I don't believe that you can truly ruin your life. I believe there is some you know, hope for resolution no matter what the situation is. And it's easy for me to say that being where I'm at. Uh, But it'd be easier for somebody else too. You know, there's somebody who it seems like it would be even easier for them to say it than it is for me. So you can see where it's, it's always that game of like, well, easy for you to say, but you can say that too. There's always somebody who has it better and has it worse. There's always somebody with more resources and less resources of all kinds. But that idea of ruining your life and, you know, that'd be bottoming out. You know, we believe that you can just bottom out, that you can fall through that abyss and you're going to hit the ground and you're going to be there. But in my own experience, you just kind of keep falling. And... uh, you eventually get some sort of control, and I mean, it's it turns out that it's that fall that gives you the fuel to crawl back up, and you don't hear very many stories about people who were living lives that were almost perfect. You know, they were living an almost perfect life. They were, they were living a B-plus life. They'd give their life a B-plus, but it wasn't quite an A, and you know, you don't hear about them going through nearly the level of transformation, although I'm not saying they don't have that. I'm not saying they don't experience it. But there's less contrast. You know, if you tell your parents, you know, uh, well, I've been getting a B-plus in math, in math, in math. Uh, if I've been getting a B-plus, and I worked myself up to an A-minus. It's going to be like, well, that's good. That's great. It's great that you have a better grade now, but it's not a great story. You know? It's it's a happy story, I guess, but nobody's really going to care. Whereas if you worked your grade up from a D, or, you know, of course an F. If you worked up yourself up from an F to an A+, plus, it's just, I mean, it doesn't get better than that. That's contrast. That's creating some good constructive contrast. And there's a reason why that's the story that you hear, too. There's a reason why motivational stories involve the person who was getting an F and is now getting an A. And I wish you heard that more. I wish that was a more common story. Like I wish you could turn on American Idol, and when they're doing the whole backstory for the singer that you know is going to get voted onto the next round, because they don't give a backstory for the person who's going to get, you know, who's not going to make it. They never do that. It's always the bat, the sob story, you know, the backstory the motivational, hopeful story that always goes along with the person who you know is going to get voted on to the next round. And whether it's the backstory that you know, makes the audience vote for them or whether it's, it's just all of the above, who knows. But the point is, is that there's always this zero-to-hero sort of backstory, and that's what people want. Unfortunately, they never say, this guy was getting an F in math and he worked his way up to an A. It's always like, oh, I was living in my car and, you know, and, and I got a I'm a single dad with a daughter who has eyeballs in the palms of her hands and not in her head. And as a result, you know, I, I just want to I want to be a famous singer. I want to be a famous singer so that I can, you know, build a mansion that my daughter with hand, with with eyeballs in her hands so that she can just, like, explore the whole house with her hands. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, they never say, like, he went from an F in math when he was in seventh grade to an A. But that is uh, uh, that is the story. It is that sort of story, where it's like going from a very low point to a high point. And it's not, he was getting a B-, and he worked his way up to a B-, Hey, you hear that? You hear about the kid? You know, there's too much bad news out in the world. There's just too much bad news. So I'm gonna start. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull a Rob Bresny and start telling everybody the good news. This is the Good News Network. I'm Rob Bresney. And did you hear about the kid who was getting a B minus in his his chemistry class, and he worked his way up to a B, a flat B? You know, you don't hear that. And in the same way when you go through a transformation it's not because your life was a B minus and you worked it up to a B. You might notice a difference in your life if you do that, but it's the story of, you know, free falling in the abyss. You know, you already got an F because you got 50% on all of your work, all of your tests, you got you got 50% of the questions right, which is an F. And you thought that maybe 50% was your bottom, but it turns out you keep falling and falling and, you know, you're waiting to get down to zero, but it just doesn't come. But, you know, you work your grade back up and you get an A. So it's like, that's the story of a personal transformation, a spiritual transformation. You know, it's the dark night of the soul followed by some form of ascendance. And uh, that's just interesting how it always tends to work that way. And uh, it's, it's often incremental, you know, it's not like you immediately go from zero to 60, from the low to the high. You know, it, the progress is often I- incremental, and that's difficult for people, you know, because it involves delayed gratification. You know, you know that uh, you're eventually going to feel better, but you have to do it incrementally. The person that I talk about who, who goes to the gym on day one and they want to be buff that day. And it's good that they have that vision of themselves, but they also have to have realistic expectations. And if you are free falling and you don't feel like your life couldn't be lower, you actually don't want to wake up the next day and feel like your life couldn't be better. You don't want that sort of bipolarity if that's even a, a way to fr- a proper way of phrasing it. Uh, you don't want that sort of almost manic-depressive. You want contrast. You want to be able to look back on wh- where you were at before and say, I'm sure glad that I'm here now. But you don't want it to be that sudden, even though that is kind of ha- what you want. You want to feel better now. You want to be... You, you, you want to be your best as soon as possible. Even though you want that, you don't want to shock your system because that's kind of what that is, and it's not sustainable. You know, you don't want that sort of manic depressive spike. You know, there's a reason why even in medicine and health, you know, you know increments are a part of the story. You don't want to shock your system. And you want it to be sustainable, because if you do something incrementally and develop a discipline around those incremental improvements or changes, um, you know it's it's far more sustainable. It's it's more, it's it's the tortoise and the hare. You know, it's it's that story. It's the story of just plugging along, because when you go from the lowest point to the highest point, I mean, that's the hare. You're speeding along, and then you crash again. Because if you can if you can spike that high in that short amount of time, it means you can spike back down too. It means you can get spiked like a football after a touchdown. A touchdown. Uh, I was getting something out of the the fridge, and I missed the play. Did we get a touchdown? Touchdown, Abby. My favorite show, uh... You know, my wife watches this show called Downton Abbey. You know, for me, I'm more into Touchton Abbey. Touchdown Abbey. <laughs> um, it's the name of my show. But, um... Yeah, you don't want to have a spike one way or another. You want it to be incremental. You want to develop a discipline. You want to develop, um stability, because that's the end goal. And your, your goal isn't the, the highest high either. I mean, that's what I always talk about on here. That's what everyone talks about, is just achieving that neutrality. Whether it's the Greeks, whether it's the, the ancient Persians, whether it's the Tibetans, it doesn't matter, you know, there's always that emphasis on reaching that healthy equanimity. It doesn't matter if you if you're telling people I'm a stoic. I believe in Pyrrhonism. I'm a Buddhist. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. I mean, a lot of people have found this helpful. They've it's it's become the thing is to achieve that sort of middle ground neutrality. And it's a, a more reasonable goal, too. It's much more reasonable, it's secure and in not being attached to the beauty you also become less attached to what's ugly and you're simply there and those things are available to you and you can enjoy the beauty and but also not get upset when the beauty goes away because that's how it works you know you can you can experience beauty and appreciate it fully for what it is but when beauty goes away, you're not upset. And in the same way that, you know, you experience ugliness, and you can want to shield your eyes when it's in front of you. And, uh, but when it goes away, you can stop thinking about it, too. It's the same muscle. It's the same skill. So those increments are important, but it's not fun. And you need breakthroughs. You know, if you practice something, if you're practicing a skill all the time and you just, you're improving in centimeters, it's just, you know you're improving because you're doing it, but it's just not fun. It's not, it doesn't feel worth it because you're just inching along. You need breakthroughs. And you'll experience them. That's the thing, is that breakthroughs come, and you can't force a breakthrough. I mean, that's what people want when they take psychedelic drugs, when they take any substance. You know, they're looking to achieve something that is available to them in some form. It might not be exactly what that thing produces, but they're, they're looking for some kind of breakthrough feeling, and they want to kind of engineer it. They want to force it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think, I think sometimes it takes engineering and experience to find the value in it, or to even understand that you don't have to engineer it. Some, sometimes it takes engineering and experience to realize that you can access it at any time already. And maybe not any time, but you can access it under other circumstances. Sometimes it takes that. But breakthroughs are very important. And you know, when everyone's like, just grind, you know, these people who it's their duty in life to make videos in the gym. And that's attractive. You know, as someone who enjoys working out, I can see the pull of that. And it helps people. You know, there are people who watch The Rock in the gym, his videos in the gym, and they think, ooh, uh, this is going to keep me going. This is going to keep me going on the, you know, I'm going to grind too, and that's good. And, but I, I can feel the pull myself where it's like, get at it. Everyone who has, you hear the same phrases, you know, there's all the same slogans, where get at it, get it, grind. And grinding is, is how it works, you know, everything requires grinding. But you do need those breakthroughs. I mean, if it's working out, you do need to be able to look in the mirror and be like, oh, wow, you know what? My muscles are uh, noticeable now. Or I just lifted that heavy weight and I didn't, you know, or or I ran for another uh, five miles that I didn't think I was capable of running. And uh, that's a breakthrough, but it could be artistic, too. could be you're just practicing guitar all the time and you still just feel like a a 12-year-old playing his first squire, and eventually you have a day where it's just like, oh, you know, there's a a fluidity. You tap into a flow state. Whatever it is, there's some kind of breakthrough. So it's breakthroughs, they're almost a reward, but you can't really seek them because it's kind of accepting that a breakthrough may or may not come, but seeing the activity that leads to the breakthrough as worthwhile in its own right. So you know, even though I feel like on a personal level, on a spiritual level, you have to climb in increments to get out of the abyss, I do believe that there are still breakthroughs even in that process too. And what those are, are personal. Even though there's a lot of commonality between those experiences, uh, the, these breakthroughs tend to be personal, and you know them when you feel them. Meditation as well you know you can sit there and try to clear your mind and control your thoughts not and by control your thoughts i just mean i mean you have to allow them to naturally occur but there is an amount of there, there is a certain amount of control to it but it's like you can sit there and it's just a, such a trying process truly trying you know cuz you're trying to get into this state that you think other people who have been doing it a long time, have access to, and you're sitting there and you're thinking about, you know, your ninth grade crush, a friend that you haven't talked to in five years, like something mean you said to somebody, and you know, ten years ago. And see, so there's this aspect where it's just like, oh, I'm just sitting here and I'm going through the motions. But you do need that breakthrough where you do enter that that zone, where suddenly you do tap into that frequency and you go, oh, this is what meditation is. You know, and not that it's always the same for everybody or that every practice is exactly the same, but still, it's like you will have those moments where you just think, oh, this is, this is that thing. I feel it. I feel that breakthrough. And so you do need breakthroughs, but you can't be addicted, you can't be hunting the breakthroughs. And so that's sort of the. I don't want to call it a dilemma. I don't want to. I don't want to say it's a dilemma because it's not a dilemma. I don't want to call it a dilemma because it's not a dilemma. You know, it's not a dilemma. You just have to accept that this isn't just going to be a, a constant high. This isn't. The world isn't just going to overload me with satisfaction, because that's what you're looking for basically. Breakthroughs are satisfying. They tell you that what you've been doing is worthwhile and that you are making a jump. You were while you've been improving incrementally, it's a breakthrough is an indication that you've, you know, made it just you progressed quicker during that. You know, it's you've just made you've you've gone up a level. You know, in a role-playing game, you're gaining experience points, and you know you're gaining experience points after every random battle. But if you get enough experience points, you level up. You level up, and that's sort of how it works. It's something that is, it becomes noticeable. That's basically what it comes down to: is you notice a change, you notice an improvement, and so. Um, and realizing, too, that in the same way that you'll never bottom out, when you're falling down the abyss, realizing that, oh, I'll never actually get the the salvation of hitting the ground. The dark salvation of hitting the rocky ground below. I'll never get that. I'll just keep falling forever. Even if I die. Even if something really bad happens, I'm going to continue to fall. There's no security in hitting the floor and that won't come. And maybe other people will tell you it will. I mean, maybe other people will tell you. I mean, there's a reason why rock bottom is a phrase and people will tell you they hit rock bottom. But most of the time when someone says they've hit rock bottom, they're telling you that because they have ascended since then. So did they really hit rock bottom if they were able to get back up and climb? Who knows, you know? I mean, we're not talking about a a real measurable thing here. Um, but, uh, it's real, but it's just, we can't, it's, it's very personal, it's very subjective. Um, but in the same way that, you know, in my opinion, you can just keep falling forever, and never hit the bottom, the same is true for reaching the top. You can keep climbing and climbing, and you feel like you're getting better, you feel like things are getting better, and uh, everything around you is improving, and you're constantly focused on ascending, And you realize, though, that, oh, I'm never actually going to reach the top. I'm never going to gain the security of reaching the top in the same way that I'm never going to gain the security of reaching the bottom. And even climbing, even within climbing, there's a certain amount of insecurity. You know, because you're worried about falling again, or you're worried about the next thing that you're going to grab hold of to pull yourself up. You know, so it's it's not like that's a totally secure experience either. So in the same way that you can fall forever, it's like you can keep climbing forever. You know, if you surround yourself with beautiful things, well, you're going to develop a dependency on beautiful things. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't live a life that is aesthetically attractive to you and decorate your house how you want. And have an attractive spouse, you know, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do that. But if you become dependent on beauty, you know, you're going to feel some sort of deprivation when beauty isn't around you. I mean, it, it very well can happen. And it plays into the idea of not becoming attached to beauty because when you're attached to beauty, you feel deprived when it's not there. But um, speaking of spouses, you know, that's something... Relationships. uh, Relationships. uh, But, you know, something I always think about is how... You know, a relationship is basically forming a third entity. Two people have a relationship, and that forms a third thing. And the reason why relationships are so painful when they end, whether it's a friendship, where there's a falling out, or a breakup, a divorce, one of the reasons that's so painful is that it feels like something has died, and it has, that third entity has died or changed in some way, and that's what people are struggl- struggling with. It's not necessarily that this other person is out of their life or that their relationship to that person has changed. It's that that intersection between the person between you and the other person is not there, and it is like a death, or it is like something. If it if it's simply changed. Because that's another thing that's, I don't even know how to get into it right now, but it's like, when a friendship changes, or a relationship changes, when it's not just abruptly cut off, but when it simply changes, that can almost be harder to deal with. I mean, a great example would be if you have a drinking buddy, and one of you quits drinking, and you're still friends, but something has changed. The entity that you share has changed, and that entity, you know, we see that with you know, like it's like Voltron Transformers. You see characters where they're each a separate character, but when they come together, they form this larger, big character. This the, the robots, you know, team up and they become a larger robot. And one of them's a leg and the other one's an arm. And you know what I mean? And So that's that's one of the things that people struggle with, is that that change, because it's like, oh, we can no longer form this larger robot. And you see where groups are that. You know, there's a reason why when bands come together, they go, what are we going to call ourselves? Let's come up with a name. There's a reason why a team, a sports team, why they have a name. Because those names, the band name, the team name in sports... Those refer to that entity that is created by these things coming together, and there's a reason why, like on a team, you know, when a player leaves, how it changes the nature of the team. It changes the nature of the entity, even though it has the same name. It changes it. You know, we see where that where when a band member filters out. You know, when um, a band gets a new bass player doesn't matter how good of a bass player is a bass player they are when a band gets somebody new they can play the songs exactly the same way but something has changed something has changed in the nature of that entity that those individuals create when they come together and people will stop liking a band because they got a new bass player or a new drummer and it's not that they decided that they just feel that something has changed and so it's something we struggle with on a personal level, but also in our interests. You know, you can see it with teams, too, where, you know, a certain player leaves the team, and even if the team is still competent, there is some kind of struggle there. Something is different, and I don't I don't love it. That's basically what it comes down to. And if I don't love it, I'm so attached to loving it that if I'm not able to completely love it right in this second, I feel horrible. If it's not beautiful... I I feel horrible. Horrible. So you see that play out. But that idea of the, the third entity that gets created between two people, fascinating. And One way that you see this, it's not just in the loss of a relationship, but it's also in you realize that you only think a certain way when you talk to a certain person you only have certain experiences maybe your humor's at its best when you're going back and forth with a certain person they bring out the best in you there's a phrase that people use they really bring out the best in me and that's usually specific it's it's specific to to certain sensations certain behaviors And, uh, you know, it's the same thing for music again, where it's, you know, or sports for that matter. And, you know, when the Seahawks had the Legion of Boom, you know, when all the defensive backs were the best in the league. And it's funny to hear people talk about that because they'll be like, Richard Sherman was only good because he had Earl Thomas at safety and Cam Chancellor at strong safety and And it's funny to hear that, and then you'll hear people say, well, Earl Thomas was only good because he had Richard Sherman at cornerback. And you see where, individually, nobody's denying that these players were incredibly good, but people also recognize that together they formed something larger, and people gave that a name. Just calling them the Seahawks' defensive backs weren't enough. They come up with another name, the Legion of Boom. Together they formed the Legion of Boom. So you can see where, you know, you come together and you form something larger. Another entity is created. Those players brought out the best in each other. And it didn't mean they weren't already the best at their positions, but they brought out something a little more. Their strengths work together. And it's not necessarily a matter of talent, because you can put two really good players who on a football field, their jobs depend on each other. You can put two of the best players next to each other, but if they don't have chemistry, if they don't get along, you know, it might not work out. So it's not as simple as just putting the best guys with each other. It's not as simple as that. In the same way that, you know, what makes a band good isn't necessarily their musicianship alone. You know, you can have a bunch of you know, technically proficient musicians in a band, but it doesn't achieve anything magical. You know, there's no... It doesn't produce that magic that you are seeking. So it's not a matter of just putting... It's not a matter of just combining proficiencies. There are intangible factors. In the same way that you can meet somebody, you can you can have a friend and you have everything in the world in common with them and you do create some sort of third entity that is called a friendship but it's not necessarily on that next level whereas you can meet somebody who you have very little in common with but the chemistry is there i mean i think it's it's very true for romantic relationships where on paper somebody might be the perfect fit but it doesn't create that other thing it doesn't create that it doesn't take things to that other level whereas somebody unexpected can can do that. And that's, I think, why you need to keep an open mind and be careful about how you define your own identity. Because uh, I was talking to my friend about this, about how I've always had a very fractured sense of identity. My life has always been very compartmentalized, where certain interests, certain friendships, certain activities, they're all very separate from each other. And I'm not one of those people who has ever wanted to have a birthday party where everybody from my different compartments comes together. You know, I'm not a uniter. And I would love to be, you know, I would love to be that kind of person who can bring people together, but it's just not natural to me, and because it's not natural to me, it makes things feel awkward for me, and I believe awkward for other people, when I've brought people together from different worlds of mine. I'm just not great at that, you know? I'm not great at at smoothing that out. Uh, and so I've always had this very compartmentalized life, and accepted that, you know? But there's a part of you that can feel like something of an imposter, where you think like, If I'm this person when I'm around these people, or in this situation, and I'm that person when I'm in this other situation, there must be something false about me. I must be an imposter. You know, if I'm wearing these different masks, if I'm... If who I am can change, depending on the circumstance, depending on who I'm talking to, something must be off, and... Well, I've always embraced the compartmentalization of my life. There did seem to be something, you know, off about it. There also, you know, and not that it was, it's not like living a contradictory life. You know, it's not like you're a, a preacher who, you know, preaches against homosexuality. And then in your, uh, in your secret life, you're, you know, going to see male prostitutes, which is, you know, a story we always hear and everyone loves to shame those people for that. It's not something like that. It's just kind of like, I behave this way around my coworkers, and I only talk about A, B, and C with them, and that doesn't feel like it's the real me, but yet I do get something out of it, and and this third entity is created you know, within those relationships with my coworkers, but yet it's not the same entity that gets created when I'm hanging out with my closest friends who I have interests in common with or a a long life history with. And that's a thing, too, is that there are people who you might meet them as an adult and you form friendships based on a common interest or some sort of circumstance that brought you together, and that's going to be different than the friendship you have with your lifelong friends who have known you since you were you know, four or five years old. It's just going to be different. The entity that you create together is going to be different. And that's perfectly fine. It's great. It's wonderful. And you have to realize you're not an imposter. And in recognizing that you can be different things and you can form different entities depending on who you're with or what those relationships are based on, in the same way that that happens you realize you're not an imposter, but who you are is much more open. Who you are is much more free than you previously realized. Because where the problem comes in with a compartmentalized life, where a problem comes in when you feel like who you are is fractured into these different shards that interact with different things at different times and make you feel slightly different within those interactions, the thing about it, where the problem comes in is that you think you're supposed to have some concrete identity all the time. You think you're supposed to be essentially one thing. You're an individual, and what it means to be an individual is to have a concrete set of qualities, interests, opinions, experiences, ideas that make you who you are. And if those aren't the same all the time, you're somehow not real. But the true nature of who you are, the fact that you came from nothing, you came from the void, to some degree. I mean, who knows? You know, who really knows? But um, the fact that you, you were a baby birthed into this world in a body and you were a blank slate at that time, and you had none of the ideas and opinions and relationships that you would eventually have, that should tell you that your true nature is a blank slate. And if your true nature is a blank slate, that sense of identity that you think needs to be universally consistent in all of your interactions, you start to see where that's not entirely who you are and you see where that's formed partially out of habit, partially out of circumstance and if these things that you think are part of your core identity are as circumstantial you know if they if they did form so much out of just your life circumstance you realize that They can change, and they can be different, and your life can be something where you can be exactly who you are, but have different relationships, form different entities with people, depending on circumstance. So there's this freedom that comes out of that realization. There's this freedom that I thought I had to be completely consistent all the time, and it's something we feel not just in our relationships, not just in our interactions, because, I mean, it can be something as simple as having friends with different political beliefs and agreeing with all of them for different reasons. I mean, that's a part of it, too, because you form this identity that I'm a liberal, I've got these this set of values, oh, but this value that other liberals commonly believe I don't have, or I'm a little more loose with it, I might... I might basically believe it, but I have a slightly different interpretation of how to put it into practice. But somehow that creates dissonance because by calling myself a liberal, I'm attaching myself to this entity that has a strict idea of what it is. But are my relationships actually based on that identity? Because the the, the entity that you form this third party that you form with your direct person-to-person relationships with the people you know, that's one thing. But we have a tendency to do that with things that we are not even directly a part of, like a political party. Something that you're basically told that you are a part of, but it isn't an organic product of your interactions with somebody. Like, your interactions with a friend, even if you both have, have liberal views and you both agree on everything, that third entity that is that is created isn't liberals. Like, oh, when me and my best friend hang out, we create this third entity called liberalism. You know, No, that's something that's coming from the top down, and you're applying to yourself from above. It's not coming from within. But it's easy to get tricked into thinking that that is the substance of your... Relationships, that that is the third entity that you and your friends create together. It is easy to think that these external things that you apply to yourself are the thing, when those aren't the things that are coming from within. And then what happens if you have friends who are conservative and you agree with them you know, on some things? Are you a hypocrite? And then what happens if that same... if the same differences also happen within you regardless of your relationships with other people I mean like I'll say on this show how sometimes I wake up and I'm much more liberal and then the next day I wake up I go to bed the next day I wake up and I'm more conservative some days my opinion changes you know in the span of 24 hours and then it changes back again and I try not to make bold declarations based on how I'm feeling in that given moment. I mean, you could wake up one day and you, you know, see some homeless people and think, like, I'm going to give them money. God, I can't believe their life. You know, who knows what their family background was? Who knows what their mental condition was? Who knows what what sorrowful set of life circumstances led them to living on the street? You know who knows, and you can have this great empathy for somebody in that situation, and then maybe even the same day it doesn't have to be this thing where you go to bed and it changes. It could be in the span of the same day in the same way that your moods can fluctuate. I mean you could have this great empathy to for somebody on the street and give them money, and you know you're just you send in those positive vibes to them, and then you walk down another street and there's another homeless person and they scream something you know at you, and you just think, God, this homeless problem's out of control, oh, the homeless problem, you know, you could turn into that person in, you know, just a snap of the hand, you know, it just, and you shouldn't beat yourself up over that, and you shouldn't feel like a hypocrite, and you should realize that there is this fluidity to everything, and you shouldn't rest on any one of those things. You know, you shouldn't rest on any single one of those things where you shouldn't go out into the world and think that, oh, I'm I'm the savior of everybody on the street. I'm going to help everybody. I mean, that's not a bad opinion. That's not a bad attitude to have to want to be helpful, but you shouldn't get too attached to that idea of yourself in the same way that you shouldn't get too attached to the idea of yourself who's like oh these homeless people causing problems for me you know but recognize that your mood and your feelings about that can fluctuate and you should probably try to find you know what you think is you know i, I don't know i mean i think people really torture themselves trying to find the right disposition you know, they try to f- torture themselves, trying to think that you know, oh, I've got to find the the perfect moral balance. I've got to find the perfect ethical balance in my life, and it's not a bad goal to have. But at the same time, you can easily torture yourself over that of just you know trying to have the right opinions. But sometimes the opinion that you express isn't how you feel. And sometimes the opinion that you feel isn't what you're expressing. You know, it's, it's just, it's and you recognize that there is some transience to that. You know, you recognize that there is some, that it isn't as stable as you thought. In the same way that you even look for stability when your life is spiraling out of control and you're thinking, well, eventually I'm going to hit rock bottom and that's going to give me security. Because then I'll at least know that there's no hope. If I hit rock bottom, I'll at least know that there's no hope. But even the people who will tell you that they've hit rock bottom will say that that was the moment they started gaining hope. So you can see where there's even no... Even if you do hit this mythical rock bottom that I don't believe in because I'm one of those people. Right now, I don't believe in rock bottom. But in an hour, I'll tell you, well, rock bottom might exist, like Atlantis. Rock bottom's a lot like Atlantis. Um... In an hour, I might tell you, well, maybe there is something. Maybe you do hit a point in your life where you just stop falling, and you're like, ooh, I'm, I'm fucking hurting. That was a long drop. But it's just interesting that people kind of seek out rock bottom because they think that that's almost a form of security. It's almost like, I'm, I'm not getting out of this self-destructive spiral now, and I can just embrace it. Because I'm at rock bottom, and there's nothing to grab hold of. And people do—if you don't believe that, maybe you don't know the right people, because there's a lot of people who, who are looking for that. There's a lot of people who are looking for that final excuse, basically. Because when someone is seeking rock bottom, when they're seeking the bottom of the abyss, it's like, then I can give myself permission to just drink myself to, to death, to kill myself— to start hurting other people because nothing matters. That'll be the nihilistic justification that I've been looking for because I've been conflicted, because I've been falling. I've, I'm still attached to that place that I fell from. But once I hit bottom, it's my excuse. I'm looking for that excuse, the, and there's a security to that excuse. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so you're always looking for that foundation. That's what it comes down to. You're always seeking that foundation. You're seeking it in yourself. You're like, oh, I now have these sturdy opinions. I now have, these are my interests. These are my beliefs. I now know exactly who I am, and who I am is the same regardless of who I talk to. And that's different from being two-faced. I mean, being two-faced is, is you know, being really nice to someone to their face and then turning around and talking shit. Which you shouldn't do. You know, you shouldn't do that. You know, and I'm not going to tell you why. I mean, I think you know it when you do it and it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel good when you're being two-faced. But you also shouldn't beat yourself up over it or think that you are somehow false because of it because that's a real thing too. You can feel in the same way that you can wake up and have a different opinion about some worldly event or some political your political opinion can change. Who knew that having an opinion on these worldly events, these huge large events that are multifaceted and dependent on your perspective and your background and you know how you're feeling that day. You know, who would think that those could change, you know, even within your own brain? But in the same way that you can have a different opinion day in and day out, or even in the span of one day, your opinion can change on a given subject, and it's the same for people. You know, you can feel the same way about people, but I think that's a little bit different, and I think, you know, you just know that there is something off with your own game when you're, kissing someone's ass and then trashing them behind their back. You just know that's not the way of things. And it's easy to do. And maybe it does apply to ideas and more abstract concepts where you know, um, it could be like you're, when you hang out with your liberal friends and you hang out with your conservative friends, like when you're with your liberal friends, if you say, yeah, you're right, they should take all the guns away from these Republican stupid retards with their guns and their, you know, they should take their guns away. But then if you hang out with your conservative friends that day, that night, when you're doing your table hopping, when you're doing your speed dating with your friends, um, and then you go to your conservative friends and they're like, yeah, they're going to take our guns away. And then if you're like, you know what, they should not, they should never take your guns away, the stupid liberal, you know, uh, commie, you know, it's, it's like, if you do that, I mean, that's going to be the same thing as, you know, kissing someone's ass to their face and then talking shit behind their back. It's kind of the same thing. And, uh, you can do that, you know, and maybe you, maybe your opinion does change depending on who you're around. And that's an interesting idea too, not to spiral out too far. Um, but, I remember a friend pointing out to me, it's like whenever he heard certain music in a certain friend's car, it sounded better than when he listened to it on its own. And I think the same is true for opinions, where it's like sometimes when when you're with certain people, and it's not that you're weak-willed, but it's just something about the third entity that gets created between you and certain people can kind of change what you think about. The world; it can kind of change your entire perspective. So it's good to be aware of that. And it does not mean you're weak-willed. It does not mean that you have, you know, flimsy ethics or anything like that. It's just something that can happen. It's, it's, you know, an almost, uh, you know, it's a magical process. It's, the, it's the magical process. It's something that we can't quite understand, but we shouldn't, you know, twist ourselves up because we have changing, and, you know, things aren't going to be the same, and we aren't always the same. And we understand that in relation to time. We understand that time changes us, but it's hard for us to comprehend that we also change on a much shorter scale. You know, we we also change— Like I said, you can can change and then go back. Like, you can go back and forth in a very short amount of time and not fundamentally change who you are because who you fundamentally are is a blank slate. You've just built up these calluses. You've built, you know, you've developed these wrinkles. And, you know, those wrinkles come from, you know, making certain facial expressions. If you raise your eyebrows too much, you're going to have a bunch of, you know, wrinkly lines in your forehead. You know, if if you squint too much, you're going to get crow's feet next to your eyes. Literal, actual crow's feet from the bird, a crow. You're going to develop, they're going to grow out of your head. Just like the little girl whose dad is singing on American Idol. Just like she has eyeballs in the palms of her hands. You're going to have actual bird feet sticking out from the sides of your eyes. But no, in the same way that wrinkles develop, in the same way that all of that develops incrementally, um, in the same way that you gradually go bald, you know, your personality forms in certain ways, your interests form certain ways based on what you've experienced, what you've heard, but you have to realize that that's not necessarily who you are either. You know, you are much more of a blank slate, and because you are blank, a blank slate, it doesn't mean that you are susceptible to everyone else's influence, although it can, and people are. People are very susceptible to the influence of others, and good. You know, good. What else do you have? Who would you even be if you weren't susceptible to outside influence? You know, I mean, it's, it's good because those things are fun, those things are interesting. And you shouldn't strive to have no identity, but you should learn that the fractured identities you do have, the compartmentalized identities you do have, are all equally you, but they're also not permanently you either. They're not fixed, and they're not as fractured as you think. They form who you are based on how you've developed in this lifetime. And does that mean that that's a reflection of your soul? Probably a reflection of it, but does that mean it is your soul? Because your soul is probably that blank baby slate, the blank baby slate. I'm a blank slate baby, but the the part of you that is, that is blank, that is susceptible... But in being susceptible to influence, you also understand where you can influence things. And if you're an introvert who has lived this life where you're constantly feeling like people are coming to you, people are approaching you, people are starting some kind of social process, they're, they're like, other people are always winding up the the social machine and you're responding to it you're reacting to it and you never initiate you're afraid to call somebody on the phone you're afraid to talk to a cashier you know it's always somebody else and when you approach somebody or you make a phone call and you do it enough to where you develop the confidence to do it that's a really interesting thing too because you realize that you are changing the world in that moment. And that's a bizarre feeling. If you're somebody who doesn't typically engage people and you find yourself engaging people and you realize that the course of this day has changed forever this, you know, a small little decision right now has changed everything. And you're doing that constantly, you know, you're, of course, doing that constantly. But I've experienced that socially before, where I wouldn't consider myself an introvert. But I'm also not somebody who typically engages people out in the world, in the world. But I have had that experience where I've engaged somebody. And it was almost epiphanous, because in that moment, I was like, By simply talking to this person, I changed the entire nature of my reality, and whether it was just a fleeting interaction with somebody who's in a service job, or whether it's somebody who then became a friend or a fixture in my life, it's still amazing how just making that decision changes your life. Even just for that day, if something just changes a moment in your life, that is something that changes you in some way. Um, And in that moment, there is a third entity. You know, every interaction, there is this, you know, it's like a Venn diagram. Something is created in between you, and it does feel kind of like an entity, but you are both a part of it, and you form it. And if two people can do that, everybody can do that. Everybody together forms something, and you see where I'm going with that. You see where I'm going with that. You can predict where I'm going at this point. It's pretty predictable. And I'm someone who rebels against being, you know, predicted. I, like I don't like it when someone knows what I'm thinking or knows what I'm going to do. And, God, that's been a, a huge source of, of, you know, good and bad in my life is trying to, you know, be unpredictable and not in a dangerous way, but just I don't want you to, to know what to expect from me. I don't want you to pigeonhole me. but um you can see where you know having these different faces you know having these different masks having these different identities that depend on who you're around or who you're with where you're at when you know all these different factors how that doesn't make you somehow false or that doesn't make who you fundamentally are flimsy or weak but recognizing that it's you know I, th- I think a great example a great way of putting it is you know in Norse mythology Odin takes on different personalities. He'll go visit people and he'll look completely different. He'll take on the identity of something else or someone else. But when he becomes that identity, he owns it. He is that thing. In that moment he is that thing. He's not an undercover a- even though what he's doing is basically what you see from you know, a secret agent or an undercover detective. You know, even though what he's doing is akin to that, usually he's doing some kind of investigation or trying to get information or, or, you know, something to that effect. But Norse mythology emphasizes that he becomes that in that moment. And so in that, he isn't false. And being a god, you know, I think that would lend itself toward he's probably better at it than any of any of us are. You know, Odin is probably better at becoming the thing that he's pretending to be, and therefore not really pretending. He's probably better at that than any of us could ever be because he's freaking, he's a god, you know. Uh, but I think it's something that you can look toward. In the same way that, you know, the Christ-like perfection isn't necessarily something you will become. You won't be Christ, You know, you won't be Christ, but it doesn't mean you can't aspire toward that. In the same way that the most distant shore in Buddhism is something that you might not reach, but it's not about reaching the most distant shore, which is perfection. It's about the path there, and what you will encounter along the way, and what you are striving toward, even if you don't reach it, and maybe you don't want to reach it. You know, maybe it's not about reaching that most distant shore. Maybe it's not about becoming uh, the, the perfect Christ. You know, maybe it's not about being as good of a role player as Odin is, but seeing that as a model, seeing that as an example, and not focusing too much on the absolutes, in the same way that, you know, if you are... Striving for, if, if you have a C grade, and you're striving for an A+, plus, but you end up getting an A-, minus, that seems like a pretty, uh, doesn't seem like a bad deal, even if you didn't reach the A+. Plus. You know, it doesn't seem like a bad deal to me, considering you had a C before, or an F. Back to the grading system. You know, just because you didn't get the A+, plus, doesn't mean you didn't improve from a C. And so that's an important way of seeing this stuff too. And it and when you look at parables and parables. Parables. Gotta get that you know, just gonna kind of talk in a falsetto all the time. Uh, but when you when you read parables and you read mythology or you watch movies or whatever it is, whatever you consume that has characters, and heroes, and whatever it is you're paying attention to, you know, it's not about being that exact thing, but you can look at those things and use them as a model. And those things don't have to be perfect either, because, you know, there's a tendency to want to find fault in people and things, and to expect those things to be perfect too. And when you look at Jesus... When you look at Odin, you know when you look at Buddha, when you look at Krishna, it doesn't matter who. Uh, and and, uh, and for that matter, are those things not different manifestations of one identity too? Not to get blasphemous toward any one of any single one of the belief systems that focus on those particular figures but it's like in the same way that you can have these different identities and those different and those identities can be distinct and different and dependent on circumstance and who you're around and what the the time and place is you know you can if you want to get really grandiose about it you can think of those as like oh well in this situation I'm Odin, in this situation I'm Christ, in this situation I'm Buddha, in this situation I'm Krishna, and you probably shouldn't think that way. You know, while you can use them as models, and I think that's the central idea behind those figures, it's like you shouldn't necessarily think, well, I'm a, I'm a god, I'm a martyr, I'm, you know, you shouldn't necessarily think that way, but it's like those things could be fractured ideas of something else, too. You know, those, those could be the different identities of someone, something out there. But you don't have to be as perfect as those things, and you're not going to be. But that doesn't mean that you can't continue to use those as some kind of model or measuring stick, and not a measuring stick for, you know, your sense of self-satisfaction or validation, but just, you know, a guideline, just some kind of guideline. And, uh, yeah, what else to say about that? Um, You can see your own identities that way. You can see where, when I'm, you know, in the same way that Odin, when he is doing one of his investigations or when he is embodying something that is other than what Odin normally is, how he owns it, how he becomes it wholly... I think that's what you should do with your own different identities. You know, you should strive to be as sincere and clear as possible when you are that other identity. You know, when you are, that, when you are forming a certain entity with another person, you should strive to have that interaction, have that relationship, be as sincere and clear as possible. You should own it as much as you can. And even if it is somewhat different, even if it does change, even if it is based on your mood, even if it is based on, you know, the shifting plates underneath us, you know, even if it, if, if it is, if it does change with the tide, to use all of these uh, fun, cliche, earthly examples of things, that, you know, oh, it, the ocean's so inconsistent. Sometimes the tide's in, and sometimes it's out. I don't trust the ocean, guys. It's shallow in some places, and it's deep in other places. And it depends on, you know, where it is. I don't trust the ocean, because it, it, it's different in different places. Even though it's this one big mass of water, you know, it, it, the tide changes depending on the time of day, you know, depending on the moon, The depth of the water varies depending on the shore. So I don't trust the ocean. I mean, think of yourself that way. You know, think of yourself that way, where it's like, oh yeah, there are different circumstances. It doesn't mean that I'm not who I am. You know, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean you're not who you are. It doesn't mean the ocean isn't what it is. Just because it's deeper in some places, more shallow in others, and the tide comes in and out, it's very much the same thing. Or, you know, speaking of the moon, it's like, oh, it's it's only the moon when it's full. It's only the moon when it's a full moon. It's not a moon when it's a crescent moon, or, you know, the opposite. Where It's only a moon when it's a crescent. When it's full, you know, it's like trying to say that the moon is only the moon when it's in a particular phase. I mean, you can think of your own life that way and be like, you know, um, I change too. And it might not be as consistent as the moon. It might not be as consistent as the ocean. But you're also seeing those from an outside view. You don't know what it feels like to be the moon. You don't know what it feels like to be the ocean. You know, you're coming from a different place, and yeah, we have calendars based around them. We have a system for understanding the rhythms and the consistency of the tide and the phases of the moon. We know how to measure and predict those. But how do you know that something isn't capable of seeing you the same way? You know, how do you know that something out there isn't capable of seeing you in your different phases, in your different tides, the same way? It might seem more chaotic and random because you're the one experiencing it moment to moment. You don't have that top-down view of your own life. So how can you really measure? How can you really know the rhythms that you are exhibiting? And chances are, what you're doing is more consistent than you realize your rhythms are probably more consistent than you have any idea about. You know, so so that's a... And people might see that... Other people might see that better than you do. You know, because you see it in other people. Um, but sometimes that's what's scary is when when you think somebody else... When you don't understand somebody else's rhythm, you think that they are just, you know, unpredictable and chaotic, so it's easy to judge other people for these same reasons. It's easy to judge other people for perceived inconsistencies when chances are you have the same inconsistencies. You vary too. And uh, you're not breaking the system too either. You know, that's the thing where, you know, in the same way that we can see that there is a system to how the ocean works or a system to how the moon, you know, to how we see the moon, the phases of the moon... It's like there very well might be a system to your rhythms and your uh, consistencies and inconsistencies, and it might be a part of something that you can't totally comprehend, but you can accept it. You can accept that you are these different things in different times and places, and it's liberating to realize that, and I think that's part of the incremental process of getting out of the abyss, because you realize that those different ways that your whether it's your personality, your ego, or whether it truly is your soul, but the different ways that you manifest, depending on who you're around and who you're with, and what day of the week it is, uh, you know, what, what time of year it is, you know, seasonal depression, I feel happier when it's sunny, oh, I, li- I like the rain. Oh, I like—I love it when it's rainy out, and I love it when it's sunny out. I must be a hypocrite. No, of course not, you know? Uh, but in the same way that, you know, you have these different ideas and feelings, and those create these different identities, and you can realize that those identities are tools too. And when you accept that you have these different personalities or identities or whatever they are, when you realize that you have those and you accept that that's a part of your system, when you accept that you have these different things, you start to see what the strengths are. And you start to see what you're getting out of these things. And you start to see what you're not getting out of others. You know, you start to see where, oh, certain relationships, the, the third entity that is formed when I hang out with that person is always destructive. And then there's somebody else where it's like, well, sometimes it's destructive and sometimes it's very constructive, and it's there's some necessity to that relationship. Something comes out of that that I find value in, so I'm going to keep it. But this one that's completely destructive, this this destructive entity that comes out of this one relationship, well, I can't have that. You know, I, I'm not, I'm going to let that one go. But you can see where in having these different faces and becoming different characters you have the strengths of those characters to help you, and while there are certainly weaknesses to, uh, to each of those, you also have the strengths, and those can help you in your climb. You know, those can help you depending on the situation, in the same way that you're going to wear different clothes. You know, if you're going out for a, a walk in a blizzard, you're going to dress differently than you would if you're going out in, you know, to the beach. And duh, you know, heres it's profound. You're going to dress differently when you're walking into a blizzard than you would when you're on a beach, but it's true, and you can think of your own personality the same way. Your brain is going to operate in different ways. Who you are is going to manifest in different ways, not entirely differently from clothing. You know, that is going to, and those things are what is going to help you. Instead of thinking, I'm this one solid, unchanging block who is just going to fall forever until I hit the, the mythical Atlantean rock bottom of the abyss, you think, oh, well, I'm actually much lighter than I thought I was, and my weight is actually, my, the, the weight of my soul is distributed across a larger spectrum of things and each of those things has its own strengths, and while they have weaknesses as well, I can focus on those strengths and use those to help me in my incremental climb. And there are probably parts of your personality too that you know are, are going to break through. They're going to produce those breakthroughs, but that there's going to be parts of your personality that they themselves are the breakthrough. You're going to find strengths in yourself that do produce that breakthrough, and maybe that's the harmony of these allegedly different parts of you, these different identities you have working together. Maybe that's the breakthrough that comes from the acceptance, the liberation of understanding that there is variety to who you are and using that variety to your advantage rather than feeling like a hypocrite or feeling like you have to be one certain way. You know, the harmony that is created between your different parts, you know, realizing that it's not, a, it's not compartmentalization, it's not, you know, they aren't fractured. These aren't shards of something broken. These are just different components with different strengths, and you developed them for a reason. <laughs> ¶¶